Welcome to Follow the Money Ball, a podcast at the intersection of sports and money. Here's your host, David Sloan. I'm David Sloan, and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. My guest today is Christian Red. Christian is a uh, sports writer for the online publication, The Messenger. Previously, he was a sports writer for both Forbes and the New York Daily News. How are you doing, Christian? I'm doing well. It's nice to see you, David. Yeah, it's good to be seen. So um, should I start the interview with how you and I met? <laughs> we can, definitely. I think, because that's certainly a unique story. So um, story. I, I was representing Carlos Delgado, who originally signed with the Florida Marlins in 2004 as a free agent. And then the Marlins being the Marlins, after the first year of his contract, when his uh, salary was going to escalate significantly, um, the Marlins traded him to the New York Mets. And Christian, that was one of the teams that you were covering, correct? Correct. Okay. And why don't you take it up from there, and, and I'll interject my uh, my take as well. Well, the story continues with Carlos's Carlos Delgado's introductory press conference for the Mets, which I believe was in, gosh, it must have been late November, I want to say, of 2005. And um, I attended that conference. You were there, David. Obviously, Carlos was there. A horde of media was there and many other luminaries, (laughs) shall we say. And I was tasked with doing a story not only on Carlos, but in the very hectic schedule that was unfolding that week after he was uh, traded to the Mets. Um, I was tasked to try and get a one-on-one interview with him. Um, Well, as everyone can imagine in the sports writing world or the sports journalism world, that was a very difficult ask during his press conference. So I sought you out. I found out who his agent was, uh, which was you. I sought you out at that press conference and asked whether or not you thought that was a possibility. Um, If not in New York, then in his uh, native Puerto Rico. And um, that was a tall order as well, or tall ask. And um, long story short was... Delgado made it clear that he was going to be very busy. Um, He was getting married. That was the big event that was going to take place following his press conference with the Mets. Um, So I worked uh, for a very um, hard driving editor named Terry Thompson, a brilliant mind, uh, one of the first female sports editors of a big newspaper slash outlet in the country. And she, back in those days, this is 2005. So back in those days, the, uh, the budgets were a little bit more robust for New York city tabloids as they are now. Um, and she sent me on a plane down to Puerto Rico to cover not only Carlos's wedding, (laughs) to try and, 
secure that interview that we wanted for the feature. Um, so I got down there. I uh, drove across the island to Aguadilla, where Carlos is from. And I was with a photographer who was actually from Puerto Rico. So that it's a keynote there. That was a, a, a blessing in disguise. Um, so not only did he know the island well and speak the language, um, although I, I do speak Spanish, he was a native. Um, so he knew uh, his way around and we made our way to um, Carlos's home uh unannounced and just as we arrived he was pulling up uh in his pickup truck and he had just come from a workout i think um he was not that happy to see us uh but fast forwarding a little bit carlos and i are still friendly to this day so um there's a, there's a good ending to this. Um, but anyways, he said, uh, you think you're crossing the line? I'm paraphrasing, but it was essentially, you know, this is a little too aggressive to get an interview. Um, so I whimpered back to my hotel with the photographer. We thought that was the end of it. Um, but the editors in New York still wanted to, they had sent me all the way down there, obviously. Um, so we attended the wedding. And I believe, hopefully you still have it, David. Uh, there's a very famous photo that the photographer I was with took. Um, and it's the uh, happy couple coming out of the church. And I believe you're in the foreground. Um, but needless to say, we, uh, we attended the wedding as outsiders and got some wonderful photos and here's the kicker before we went to the wedding that day i was moping in my hotel room and got a call from an unknown number and this was 2005 so there was no iphones or uh androids or anything like that it was a standard cell phone and pretty primitive if you think about it but I, uh, I didn't pick up the call um, or miss the call, and there was a message on it from Carlos Delgado. And he said, you know, I'm sorry that I uh, acted in that way, and I'm happy to do an interview with you. So be ready for my call at this time. Um, and sure enough, he called, and I was able to do an interview with him before his wedding and do the story. So... It all ended well in the end. Well, um, I'll I'll tell my side now. Um, so <laughs> after after. By the way, I want everyone to know this predated the release of the movie Wedding Crashers. So I think Christian probably deserves at least a modicum of credit for yes. uh, creating the that idea. Uh, I don't know if he'll get any royalties from it, but nonetheless. I think he should get at least some credit. So when when you and I met up in New York, I told Carlos that you wanted to interview him. And, and I, too, was unaware that you were going to be in Puerto Rico. But, um, you know, he told me about you coming to the house. And, you know, he was just motherfucking everybody up and down at that point. And I told him, I said, 
you know, you can do that if you want, but understand this, the New York press is vicious and they will kill you if you don't become a little bit more accommodating because I haven't spoken to Carlos in many years, but he always was a very private person. Mm -hmm. He was fine with doing whatever uh, at the ballpark or if he was making an appearance somewhere, he was as you know nice and outgoing and personable as any athlete I've ever seen. But when he was on his own time, he was a private person. Um, and particularly this being his wedding, he was particularly uh, concerned about, uh, let's call it the the security or lack thereof. Um, I can't say that any conversation I had with him was directly responsible for him talking with you, but I also know him to, in general, have listened to my counsel um, throughout the years that uh, we were doing business together. And he may have spoken to other people as well. His father was very influential. His wife was obviously very influential. Um, they may have as well said, it's probably going to be better for you to uh, rip the Band-Aid off, so to speak, do this and get it over with, yeah. as opposed to continually trying to keep uh, um, not just this one Christian red writer, but the entire New York press at, at arm's length. Yeah. So um, I was very happy that that happened. I thought the piece came off very well. And um, that's kind of where my relationship with you began. Yes. So kind of a, a interesting beginning. Um, and, and interestingly enough, when I saw Carlos years later, he called me, quote unquote, the wedding crasher. So he too adopted that. Uh, I don't know if it was directly tied to the movie, but my moniker with him is wedding crasher. Oh, had to be, it had to be, and probably always will be. Yes. Um, so, so that was how you and I uh, met and began our relationship. I'm curious as to how your relationship with sports writing began. Um, have you always been interested in sports? Have you always been interested and in, not just interested, but good at writing? How did this all begin? I assume that as a kid, you probably played little league or whatever, and that was at least your introduction to the world of, of sports as a, as a player. But obviously at a point you transitioned from that role to, Hey, maybe I won't play center field for the Yankees. So uh, I have this other skill. How can I incorporate my love of sports with this other skill? Or I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I'm no. very curious as to how that happened and when it happened in particular. So, yes, I was a big sports fan growing up. I grew up, I was born in Ohio, in Cincinnati. So I was a big red machine fanatic, as were my older, three older brothers. And the 75 World Series certainly still is... Uh, implanted in my memories as a great sporting event of all time, but obviously for me and uh, my brother's uh, Reds rooting fans, uh, I did not um, set out to be a sports writer. 
and I did not have any uh, illusions of grandeur that I was going to play center field for the Yankees or the Reds or the Phillies, where I grew up in uh, suburban Philadelphia. Um, so when I finished college, I went straight to New York and worked in the publishing industry for a decade. Then I went back to graduate school uh, for a journalism degree at Columbia. And uh, I still didn't have any specific aspirations to be a sports writer. I just wanted to get any kind of job in journalism and media that I could once I graduated. So I finished in 2002 um, in, in New York, obviously. Um, and my first amendment professor is a very, uh, well-known attorney in the media world. And she's a very high uh, ranking, um, executive with Hearst named Eve Burton. Um, so she was not only my professor, but many of the students at the journalism school's professor as well for that specific course. And after uh, I had the class with her, we became friendly. And towards graduation, she said, you know, what are your plans? And I said, well, I'm going to try and get any kind of job I can. And she had this Rolodex that you would dream of, of all the newspaper editors, of all the TV station program directors, et cetera. And so she just went down the list and said, what about this person? Do you want to live here? Do you want to go here? And she basically set the stage for at least, you know, scores of leads that I would be able to, to contact um, and see if there was any kind of uh, getting the foot in the door, so to speak. And one of the people that she recommended was Terry Thompson, who was, not the sports editor of the Daily News Sports Department at that time. She was the assistant managing editor. And then she eventually succeeded Leon Carter. But she had already started her uh, investigative team within the sports department at the Daily News, which was not only unique, but one of its kind. Uh, There didn't exist any kind of... I team at any other sports department across the country. Um, So that was interesting. Anyways, I was uh, given her contact info. I made an arrangement to meet with her. And this was probably about two or three weeks before I graduated from Columbia. So that's a very key point. Um, So we're talking April of 2002. So I arranged to meet her. I, was almost late getting there, but we met at a little, no longer exists, but it was literally one of those old New York diners, like a car, an actual diner car. Oh, wow. Right up the street from the Daily News, where it was located at the time, which was on West 33rd Street. No man's land. Now it's the Hudson Yards and everything's developed, but then it was uh, a wasteland. So I arrived, she was already sitting in the booth and It was, David, a complete disaster. And for all these listeners, (laughs) have hope because there is a a silver lining to this story. But I arrived and I had not, A, I hadn't really prepared myself for the interview. And 
anyone can make whatever they want to out of that remark. But more specifically, I hadn't really read a lot of the content in the Daily News then and recently when I sat down with her. And as I mentioned, she had started this I-team. So she asked me, what do you think of this issue we're covering or what kind of issues do you think you would want to pursue? And I, I didn't have any, any ideas. I didn't have any story concepts. I hadn't read any of the coverage that they were doing. And that was just on the cusp of the performance enhancing drug boom with all of the Balco and Mark McGuire and on and on and on. So needless to say, the there was a lot of crickets and silence throughout the, the meeting. It didn't last long, maybe 25 minutes or so. And I walked away much like I did with uh, the Carlos Delgado encounter at his home with my tail between my legs and thinking that that was never going to happen with the Daily News. So the summer I graduated, the summer went on. I did an internship at Inside Edition, if you can believe that. Um, The the TV um, program and as a writer, as a writer. No, it was really kind of like a, it was actually a pretty, pretty intense two or th- it was almost three weeks. I was there. They kept bringing me back. It was paid and they paid really well, but it was like a producer type of uh, internship where you would be given a story assignment and you'd have to do all the reporting and you would get credit for it, but uh, it was nonstop. I mean, they would throw like three or four story ideas at you instantaneously and you had to call and just start building contacts and information for that segment. Um, And then at the end of the summer, we either ran into Eve or um, saw her again. And she said, well, whatever happened to, the Terry Thompson interview. And I said, ah, it was a disaster. And she's like, Oh, we'll just call her again. You know, I'll call her and say that you want to get in touch with her again. I'm like, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. And she's like, no, 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 trust me. You'll call her again. So I called her again, talked to Terry. And I said, you know, I'm still interested. Is there anything that I could do? I'm I'll empty waste baskets. I'll, you know, lock the doors at night. And she had me come in, Terry had me come in on Saturdays to do high school sports, which is traditionally, no matter where you are, that was the, that was the big entry was doing high school sports and starting point. Yeah. Not only a starting point, but a really valuable one because you, you not only developed your skills, but you, I don't know. There's just something very refreshing about covering high school <laughs> amateur athletes that is devoid in pro pro sports. Yeah. Uh, um, so that was the start. And I just kept coming back. I kept asking for um, assignments. I kept asking to help with her I team, which was uh, composed of two guys, um, Michael O'Keefe and TJ Quinn at the time. Um, and Ultimately, I was able to work with that group in addition to kind of being a, uh, a general assignment features um, 
sidebar person. I eventually did backup beat writing for some of the pro teams. Um, obviously did a lot of investigative stuff, but the one thing I kind of carved down on my own was uh, using the Spanish speaking skills to do a ton of baseball stories, including David, um, I mean, Carlos Delgado's wedding, um, but able to go all around Latin America and do a lot of really unique and um, compelling stories related to baseball. So tell me, I'm, I'm for my listeners again, I'm talking to Christian Red, uh, writer for the online publication, The Messenger. Um, so two questions. Number one, where were the professors like that when I was in college? Because I never had anyone who helped me much with anything beyond how to roll a joint. Number two, um, where did you learn Spanish? What was it that uh, prompted you to, to take that step? So with regard to the professors, um, that was a, a unique uh, connection with Eve. And um, like I said, we just struck up a rapport. There was probably about 200 kids in that First Amendment class. Um, I'm trying to remember the very famous First Amendment lawyer, Floyd. Um, I'm, I'm going to draw a blank, but he was part of the the, the, the co-teaching uh, of that class. Mm-hmm. And I had probably three or four other really, they were all, in my mind, uh, great great professors, but three or four, including Eve, stuck out as far as just the overall experience. Um, oh, you lucked out. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, it's, it's, I just saw an article about the new, um, relatively new dean of the journalism school, Yelani Cobb, and he has a terrific resume. Oh, he's great. I- I see him on TV all the time. Yeah, yep. he's great. But the <laughs> opening of the of the story or the profile, the author asks him, it's a Vanity Fair um, piece, and the uh, author asks him, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, how do you come to grips with the price of journalism program now? It's, it's $75,000. And that doesn't include uh, housing. You know, it's a nine-month program, I think. Um, I just thought that's extraordinary that that all to say that if you are going to invest in that much uh, money into a, an education, you really have to um, – get as much out of it as you can. And yeah, you got to get a, same. you got to get a return on your investment. And, yep. and it's that's the like same that. also as, uh, as any undergraduate, um, pursuits or what have you graduate pursuits. So I was going back to your point. I was fortunate that I had some really great professors there. Um, and Eve was certainly, um, I'm indebted to her forever for getting me the start. Yeah, um, as far as the Spanish, lucky. yeah. As far as the Spanish, I started taking Spanish, gosh, in middle school, and took it in high school. Um, continued in college. I went to Hamilton College, which is in upstate New York, 
And uh, it's a liberal arts college. There's only about 1,600 students, so it's very small. Um, but it wasn't until I elected to go abroad my junior year in college and um, spend the first semester I spent in Spain. I wish I had stayed the whole year in Spain, but, um, you know, we have to hindsight's always 2020. Um, my second half was in England, um, which wasn't, uh, at all a terrible experience, but I really wished I had stayed in Spain just for the overall, uh, impact on my Spanish speaking, because just when I was really getting into a groove and immersed in the culture, I picked up and left and went to a different country and spoke yeah. English. But nevertheless, uh, after college and when I first moved to New York, I just tried to continue honing the skills as best I can, whether it was taking classes or trying to speak with uh, native Spanish-speaking people in whatever um, interaction that I came across. Uh, and then when I started the Daily News, that was a that was really a great uh, opening of a door. To oh be yeah, a- that had to be a tremendous asset because yeah. um, obviously a lot of uh, uh, ball players are from Latin American countries, and um, yep. uh, you're you're the only non-native Spanish-speaking person I know whose voicemail contains a message in English and Spanish as well. Um, so that's that you're unique in another way. Um, what was the response when you walked up to one of the first few, let's say players from the Dominican or Venezuela and they say, and they see this white bread, uh, sports writer coming up to him and, uh, hablamos in, in Espanol. Um, it's interesting. I, I have to say that the majority of the time, and maybe it was just because it was an unusual circumstance. They had never encountered someone that offered to speak their language uh, during an interview. And I was also new to the, the field. So my nerves were probably evident just as much as, as theirs may have been um, as far as that scenario. So I would say that the reaction more often than not was uh, a shyness that was still there or on your you part know, of the ball player. Yeah, no, I'm the I'm part of the ball player. Uh-huh. And um, I think that that exists, whatever language you're speaking, you know, there's very few professional athletes that right off the bat are just comfortable with the the presence of you know many reporters in New York or even one reporter, um, and that's not to say, yeah, that's not to say anything about their character or their person. It's just it's a unique skill to have, and yeah. especially in New York, not many people can hit the ground running. I would say Carlos was one of those people. He really had a great, as you pointed out, when he was in the locker room or at an event that um, he had to speak with the media, um, he was tremendous, as was, uh, you know, um, his teammate Pedro Martinez was wonderful with the media. 
Um, so there are definitely people that, that can, can do that. But, uh, my experience early on was more often than not there, it wouldn't be much of a conversation, although maybe it was a little bit, uh, you know, uh, more comfortable that I was speaking their language, but it definitely helped when I was down in the, I went to the Dominican quite a bit early on and throughout my daily news tenure and it helped tremendously there in the other countries as well. But, um, since I went there quite a bit, that was, uh, that was a bonus. Oh, you got to go where the players are and an awful lot of them come from the Dominican. I'm really kind of surprised to hear that because I would think that the, at the very least it would make them feel more comfortable because they are going to be able to just speak without having to think what they're going to say and then think of how they have to say it. So it comes across well to a sports writer and then think again in terms of how to use however much English they know to phrase it correctly. Right. So, you know, right. it, it, it would seem to me that it would certainly have made them a lot more, more comfortable. I'm, I'm surprised that that wasn't necessarily the case. Are, are there any stories that were, you know, funny or interesting in regard to, to that issue, number one and number two, were there any situations where, for example, you're standing around uh, Carlos Beltran's uh, locker and there's you and three or four other sports writers and someone's asking him a question and maybe his English was okay. Maybe he didn't understand it well, or maybe he really wanted, you know, to be able to express it in Spanish better. Were there, were there any stories like that where you heard, you know, where he, where he kind of turned to you and said, answer. Christian, here's the answer. And then you translated for the other sports writers. Well, I never had that um, happen. Um, but I will say, before I answer your questions, the interesting um, change that Major League Baseball did do, which I thought was um, long overdue, and many other writers, I think, had written about it or voiced the need for it. But now all clubs have translators, not only yeah. for Spanish, but Japanese, for instance, yep. or, or Korean, whatever, Korean, whatever um, yeah. country they come from, if that's their native language, then there's a translator for that. Um, at, and at the major, it, at the major league level, yes. minor leagues, I don't believe it's, it's yeah, I don't think it's, I'm not sure, but I, I, I believe you're correct. Um, yeah. that, but that's a really unique, um, uh, change and and helps a lot and even when that was implemented and i would go to uh, a locker room i would tell the translator i can ask these questions in spanish if if he prefers and that sort of defeats their their role they're there to facilitate the interview right so, um, right. but so that creates a unique thing. But I, I think that um, more often than not, it's appreciated appreciated if you do present that option. I can ask these questions in in Spanish, and you know whether or not they want to answer in Spanish or talk in Spanish is another story. But yeah, that's a unique thing. Um, as far as um, unique story. I've never had that happen where 
someone asked me amongst a sports writers group to translate for for them. You know what happened more often than not is that another teammate who also spoke Spanish or was Spanish speaking, whether or not they were from the same country, they would often be drawn in like Mariano Rivera famously did a lot of translations, I think for El Duque and some other, some of the other players that didn't have a command of, of English. Um, so that was what usually happened is someone else would step in. That was a teammate um, that could facilitate that. Um, That's so. interesting because as you know, oftentimes different countries, what, what there's one word that if you hear it from a Cuban has a different meaning than if you hear it from yep. a Puerto Rican or if you hear it from a Mexican. Yes. And, um, I mean, I've experienced that and, and mi espanol is muy pequeño y muy malo. So, um, <laughs> even, even I know that with my miserable Spanish. So, um, you, you mentioned, uh, to, to pivot to a, to a somewhat uh, different area, but, uh, you kind of, touched on it a, a moment ago, you mentioned the Balco uh, situation. You know, there's a really interesting documentary now, I believe on yes. Netflix. Yes. Uh, I, have you, have you seen about it, it yet? I've not have only seen it, but that was one of my first stories for The Messenger. It was, okay. wasn't a review as much as uh, um, a feature on you know what now that i meant now that you mentioned it i saw you posted about that and that's what made me hunt it down yes so um i did see the documentary and my story for the messenger more or less uh well it incorporated what i thought was um some more voices of people individuals that were linked to that case, um, mm -hmm. which I thought maybe gave it a little bit more breath. Um, I did think that 77 minutes, which is the length of the documentary was way too small, a window of oh, time, not nearly enough to incorporate all of the layers of that case yeah. and the history, um, and the context. And I thought that it would have been better served as a, like a docuseries where they had you know, X amount of episodes. Yeah. Where they covered Balco in one and then biogenesis in another one. And then uh, another, you know, the involvement with the agents and all the rest of that stuff. Or, um, or, or the way I thought of it was that cover Balco only, but just do it in six or seven episodes so that you could incorporate all of the, like I said, the history, the context, all the, the key, you know, quote unquote players that were, part of that because um, it was a, you know, it's a, it's a very important historic footprint in the sports landscape. I think, I think a lot of people would agree with me as far as just the lead up to it with McGuire and Sosa and the home run chase and the pre-testing era to in implementing a drug testing program in baseball and other leagues to the fallout from all of those scandals. Like you mentioned, the biogenesis in addition to Balco, and there was a couple of others in between there, 
involving uh, PEDs? Well, I'll tell you um, my personal experience with that. And I actually um, got a, I have a letter right over there that I received in return from a letter that I sent. One of the first articles that I saw digging even beyond scratching the surface in regard to steroids was done by Mark Fenruwada. Yes. Uh, and I sent him a letter essentially saying what you wrote was very interesting, but you barely scratched the surface. I said, there's so much more to it than what you've written and keep my name out of it. But here's some other things you may want to look into. And lo and behold, later on, he did. Um, I had a client who, uh, his name will be unmentioned, who uh, essentially came to me and said, I may be the only guy on my team that's not doing steroids. And I don't know what to do about it. And I told him, don't do anything about it. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're playing well. Let those other guys do their thing and, and just keep your head down and keep playing. And he was concerned in that, and this is a typical um, thought expressed by many players. I don't want to lose my job now that I've gotten myself to the majors. I don't want to lose my job to a guy who otherwise was a triple A player, but now he's taking steroids and he's put on 25 pounds of muscle. And because of that 25 pounds of muscle, he's going to come up here and take my job. Yep. So um, I told him, I said, you know, there, there's really not much I can do about it. I will try on uh, the next opportunity that I get to address the subject with the people from the Players Association. And this particular conversation happened toward the end of the season. And as you are no doubt aware, there are meetings uh, a couple of times a year, generally during after the end of the baseball season and during spring training, where the Players Association gets together with agents and has a discussion with them. It's more, uh, well, back then it was more of a lecture than a, than a discussion. There wasn't a whole lot of interaction. And Don Fair at this point was now running the Players Association. And I believe this was back in maybe 2000. And generally the way it went was Don would come on and he would make his presentation as to here's what we've done in our discussions with the, you know, labor relations people from MLB. Here's what we've tried to do in terms of marketing uh, MLB players. Here's what we've done on the legal front. And, you know, at, at whatever point it was appropriate time-wise, there would be a break and they always had, you know, sandwich makings in the back and you can go make yourself a sandwich and then after the break for lunch john would don would uh finish his presentation and bring on um the other people there gene orza uh evan kaplan whoever you know else yep. happened to be there from the players association so at this particular meeting that i went to which was in los angeles at the break I went up to Don, and I'd known Don for many, many years at that point, going back to the, the 80s when he was an attorney under Marvin Miller for the Players Association and one of several. Um, and I said, I need to talk to you. And he said, what do you need to discuss? And I told him, I said, I have a client. I'm not going to name him. One of, he's told me he's probably the only guy on his team that isn't taking steroids. 
And he told me, there's nothing we can do about it. It's not an issue for the union to deal with. And I said, how can it not be? And he said, the owners have brought it up where they want us to go along with testing. And that is intrusive and we don't agree with it. And we're concerned that if we allow them to test for one thing, they're going to want to test for another thing. And they're going to use the information that they gain in testing against players. And I said, I understand the, the slippery slope argument, which you're trying to present to me at this time, but this is in and of itself a separate issue all to itself. And I told him, you need to do something about this. And he said, it's just not an issue for the union to handle. And I replied to him, I said, look, my dad was involved with labor unions back in the 20s and 30s. And I know enough about him, about labor unions from that and from my, what I learned in school, that one of the primary functions of a labor union was to ensure the health of its membership. Yeah. And the studies, even back then, were conclusive long-term steroid use was deleterious to the user's health. How can that health issue not be something that the union would take a role in? And he said, I'm sorry, I understand your concern. I understand your client's concern. Please tell them that we've had this conversation, but there's nothing that we can do about it. And it was only after the inflection point that we were just talking about in regard to Balco when it became so big that they could no longer ignore it, they could no longer sweep it under the rug, that they finally did something about it. Now, fast forward to today, I would bet every dime in your bank account that there are an awful lot of players doing an awful lot of things that enhance their performance. And just as is the case and always has been, primarily in Olympic sports, the real contest isn't between the, you know, eight guys competing against each other in the hundred yard dash. It's between their trainers and uh, pharmacists being one step ahead of the anti-doping people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Um, so you mentioned the, you know, the, uh, the meetings held by the players association. And I remember when I first started at the daily news. So that was in August of 2002 or September of 2002, early September. And the players association and the league had just, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the year they had just ratified a new CBA collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest the drug testing. And if you'll recall the following you froze there for a second person, can you uh, I was saying that, that that was the biggest uh, and most contentious issue was drug testing. Uh -huh. They had the following year in 2003 was the survey testing year to see if right. there was a certain threshold to uh, implement a drug testing program. Sure enough, that threshold was met, but I remember Total yeah. shock and surprised everybody that the threshold was met. Yes. <laughs> but I remember how uh, contentious, reading about how contentious that issue was. And um, I, I would 
I would say that I agree with you. Given all that I've come across in reporting and um, writing about this issue, um, you're absolutely right. Um, that was one thing I did think that the documentary sort of alluded to is that there's always going to be chemists or pharmacists out there that will give a professional or any athlete of any level an edge. And they're always going to be the athletes that want to get that edge. So they'll, you know, Hey, the thing that I always remember that stuck out to me is I, um, interviewed and, um, maintained several sources that were either uh, providers or distributors of PEDs. And one of them said to me, you have to remember that when there's a multi-million dollar contract at stake and it's between getting X amount of home runs or X amount of RBIs and this PED will help you achieve those milestones, you're going to probably think about it a lot harder to do it than not because of the economic windfall that, you know, could be coming your way if you achieve those goals. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, and, and to, to go back to my story for a moment, lo and behold, despite the testing implemented, it hasn't blown up in the players' faces. There hasn't been a situation where owners have used the blood testing to say, well, you know, what are your urine testing? We've tested your urine, and while we didn't find any steroids, we found that you have um, pre-diabetes, and because of that, we are going to insist in your next contract that X, Y, and Z have to be done. Mm-hmm. Or you have this other condition um, that shows up in your urine, and we're going to we're going to not re-sign you because of that. So, so the the nightmare, if you will, occurrence that Don Fair was trying to prevent has never occurred as a result of the testing. Yeah. So. Now, I, I know also I mentioned a, a short while ago Biogenesis, which was the subject of a book that you know, I was just looking for the book, but I packed it away already. Baseball Cop. You yes. were a, you were were you a co-writer on that? Because I can't remember exactly, you know, what it so, was. That is the correct title. It was it is called Baseball Cop. It was co-written with myself and Terry Thompson, the woman I mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, who was the daily news sports editor for, um, almost a decade. And Eddie Dominguez was the subject and he was also uh, a co-author. So the two of us collaborated with Eddie and he was a former, First uh, resident security agent with the Boston Red Sox. And for those listening that don't know what that is, that's basically the the security force for major league clubs. Um, 
And later on, he was uh, one of the founding members of the Department of Investigations uh, within baseball. And that unit was um, uh, recommended by George Mitchell. So the former senator that created the Mitchell Report, which was a All about history, steroids. Yeah, history of baseball's doping issue. He had many recommendations at the end of the report, but one of them was to uh, for baseball to establish an investigative unit separate from the um, labor department and autonomous in the sense that it would carry out its own investigations and report to, um, well, then it was Bob DuPay, who was the president. Um, and uh, the book is not only a look at Eddie's work within baseball, but it's a memoir of sorts, um, traces back to his Cuban roots. He was born in Cuba during Castro, right before Castro took over. Um, lived through Castro's uh, regime, uh, then his family fled Cuba, and he was a Boston police detective for almost 30 years, including the time when he was a resident security agent with the with the Red Sox. So um, the, the biogenesis scandal, as you just mentioned, David, factors very prominently in Baseball Cop, the book, um, because that was the, the big case, but also the last case that Eddie worked on before he and several other DOI members were terminated. Um, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was certainly a, um, a case that garnered like Balco, a lot of attention and, uh, certainly for Alex Rodriguez being the, the biggest name in the group of players that were ultimately suspended by baseball. Well, and, and it took place in your backyard, David. Yes, it did right here in, in beautiful okay. South Florida, yes. beautiful South Florida with the emphasis on the duh. Yeah. Um, Miami new times, Kevin Elfrink did uh, a lot of coverage on that yep. as well. And uh, unfortunately, as is the case often with many of these, um, let's call them scandals. Um, the people that got punished the most were the ones who profited the least. Um, the guy, I can't remember what his name was, the the doctor behind the guy, the whole thing at Biogenesis. Um, Tony Bosch. Yeah, he, he, he was punished somewhat, but um, while Alex Rodriguez was painted by it, his checks didn't stop. They did he, not. He still made plenty of money. All the other players that were involved in it, they had some minor consequences, but nonetheless, the ones that were still good players, their careers continued. The agency, the sports agency that represented, if I recall correctly, it was something like 12 out of the 15 players that were directly implicated in that scandal. They're still doing business. They're still collecting millions of dollars in commissions. They never got so much as a wrist slap as a result of their involvement in this. And, you know, their their whole, um, what, what was the guy's name? Do you remember the name of their employee 
who was the one who was directly getting the steroids from uh, Biogenesis and distributing it to their players? Well, interesting. Um, so, yes, there's an interesting um, separate um, piece um, that's related to Genesis. Um, but before I talk about that, so I agree with you on Alex Rodriguez. He didn't uh, lose a whole lot, but he did forfeit his pay for 2014. Granted, that was, uh, you know, probably a, a drop in a lot of money. Yeah. Right, but but, um, a lot of money to the average human being, but nothing to him. Yeah. Um, but the, there was an individual um, who was part of uh, the group that was indicted by the, the government. Um, and his name is escaping me at the moment, but he did work for the ACEs agency, um, Seth and Sam Levinson. Um, and ultimately he filed suit against ACEs after the biogenesis matter had more or less concluded. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't, I, I did a story while I was still at the daily news on that, lawsuit um but there wasn't a whole lot of coverage and it stayed pretty quiet um as it unfolded but ultimately um he settled which is probably what a lot of people would have expected to be the outcome but when i did the one or two stories on the on the lawsuit being filed he was represented by a boutique law firm in New York city. And one of the attorneys said to me, you know, the biogenesis group of names is only the tip of the iceberg, meaning that there was more names that would likely come through, whether it was discovery or trial, whatever. But obviously we never got to that stage and uh, the names, if there were any others, never came to light. But that well, was that's why the case was settled. That's why yeah. the case was settled was to bury Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And they buried all that. Yep. Yep. So and and the players association did their own air quotes investigation of aces, which Correct. probably consisted of I'm trying to remember if Michael Weiner was still alive back then. Um, no, this was after. Okay, so it probably consisted of Rick Solomon or one of the other um, gentlemen associated with the Players Association picking up the phone and calling the people at Aces and saying, did you do it? And the people at Aces saying no, and that was the end of the investigation. Yeah, there, and, was, a, there was a release by, I believe, Tony Clark that said... I'm paraphrasing, but it essentially said that they were not to been found to have, you know, created any illegal breaking of laws or rules. Yeah, they were blameless. And if you buy that, there's some land about nine miles west of me that's <laughs> only about four or five feet underwater. And the alligators that live there are pretty friendly. You just have to be careful when they haven't been fed for a while. 
Yes. Uh, I'll gladly sell you that lamp if you believe that. <laughs> so do you see any stories coming up today that because of the change in whether it's the games or how they're played or how they're covered that you would say maybe not necessarily scandals but things that let's say come down the pike in the next six to 12 months that may be eye openers for the the average sports fan well what do you anticipate being the the big things to come from the next football baseball basketball seasons on any particular issue or just in general just anything anything in, in general whatever whatever you see because now that you're doing this for the messenger i'm sure you're all over this like a cheap suit on a pretty much 24 7 basis because i i have to imagine that working for an online thing has some greater immediacy and please correct me if i'm wrong than you know working for a pay a dollar for an actual physical newspaper type of operation. I think it's a little bit of, of everything. It's a traditional news outlet, the messenger with all verticals, news, politics, entertainment, sports. Um, the, the sports vertical is actually launching next week. Although there has been coverage for more than a month now and content in that section, um, but it's a traditional outlet like any other. Um, so as far as being all digital in the immediacy, um, yes, there is that element with breaking news or um, if any reporter is um, astute enough to get a scoop, that would be um, an occasion for urgency to get it posted so that you could be the first to, to do that if if. Mm-hmm. if an opportunity to do those kinds of things in this day and age. I think reporters jump at that, but there's also, um, you know, features in the sports department, um, uh, enterprise stories, investigative stories um, that will require not only more time to report and, um, and develop, but, uh, that won't necessarily mean a deadline of sorts to you have to get it in by this time. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, uh, it's, it kind of circles it. It kind of circles yeah. it. And, and, and Christian, please, if, if there isn't anything that really comes to mind, that's fine. I mean, uh, that's an acceptable no, answer. I, I think, well, for certainly for New York, there's the baseball story of the two pro teams, spectacularly collapsing shooting the bed i think is the technical term yes i think that's an ongoing story um that will have endless uh readership because of the you know just nature of what they came into the season being predicted to do and what ultimately happened i think aaron Rodgers with the jets is going to be an ongoing hopefully he won't get injured um, but that, as you know, is a 50 plus year saga for Jets fans um, since Joe Namath guaranteed and followed through with a Super Bowl victory. They're waiting for that to happen. They've been waiting and he 
seems like the first legitimate chance in a long time for maybe possibly getting to that stage. So I think those yeah. are big New York stories. Yeah. Um, They've got a basketball team there too, don't they? In New York, God, what's the name of that team again? <laughs> yep. They've also been waiting a while. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're closer than the Jets are uh, as far as that's concerned, but that's just me. I think Otani is an incredible story. And I'm sad that he got injured recently. And I'm, you know, like every other fan, worried about coming back from a second Tommy John surgery after having already done that procedure. Um, but I still think he's an incredible once in a lifetime talent. Um, well, Jameson really Tyon. Yeah. The first Jameson Tyon and some other players have proved that it's possible to come back from a second Tommy John. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, I hope been you're covering- right. You've been covering the sport for a long time. Let me ask you from from my perspective, if I was representing the guy, I would negotiate a one-year contract for him and maybe some options that mm-hmm. would give him the opportunity to opt in as opposed to opting out of something. Whereas where after a, a year, if he wants to remain with that team, then another four, five, six-year contract would kick in. Or he could become a free agent and give him a year to contribute as a hitter and pay him as such and continue to rehab himself from the Tommy John surgery. I'm really surprised you mentioned Otani. I'm really surprised he didn't just blow off the rest of the season and get the Tommy John done now as opposed to waiting another, what, six, eight weeks to to have the procedure done and pushing his recovery out by another six or eight weeks as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and ultimately, I would think some people would call it a head scratcher because he, he could do that. Although I don't know, and I don't think um, it's been revealed whether or not that might be the best option to do right away. Um, And I also know that Red is that he's a competitor and this was maybe the closest that the team was going, to, I mean, earlier on the summer, of course, but now it looks like they're, you know, trying to play catch up with the rest of the division to try and make the playoffs. Um, and I, I'm sure he felt like maybe this was his best chance with this team to, to get there. And they did some moves at the trade deadline, but yeah, but once it was, once, yeah, once it was diagnosed, the, get it done. Yeah, regardless of, of when he, if he does indeed get Tommy John, um, I think your point about a one-year contract is a very astute one. And I, I would guarantee, Joe Namath guarantee, that teams yeah. are thinking about that strategy and all the teams, I'm sure, are are trying to, that, that can afford a player like that, are, are looking to get their package together their uh you know recruitment package but i would think that would be the the smartest thing to do because if he does get the surgery he's not going to pitch next year um he's not going to play so well that that was my point if he has the tommy john done immediately upon being diagnosed mm-hmm. he would have recovered soon enough by the end of next year more than likely to swing a bat yep and he would have been able to continue his rehab as far as throwing a ball was concerned along with that. But his his hitting would probably 
and I emphasize probably, I'm not a doctor, I don't play one on TV, but I've watched what's happened with position players who have had Tommy John. Um, they've come back and been able to swing a bat fairly quick. It's, it's the whole issue regarding throwing. But, you know, his whole career over here has been kind of a, a mystifying experience for me because he could have picked any team in baseball, mm-hmm. and he picks the Angels, and the Angels are a clusterfuck. They've been a clusterfuck for years. Why he would sign with them over one of the other teams that, that was pursuing him, the Dodgers, the Yankees, somebody like that, somebody with a much more firmly established tradition of winning, it, it was a mystery to me, but you know, no one asked yeah. me at that point. <laughs> it's a mystery, I think, to a lot of people. And I just recall even maybe last year where the Angels would have a game and he would hit a home run and three RBIs and Trout would have an equally good offensive game, Mike Trout, and they would still lose by like 10 to six. And yeah. it would happen again and again. And, and he would pitch yeah. on the days that he pitched, he would be remarkable, but there was no offense behind him. So they would lose that game. And it just yeah. makes you cringe to think about this talent. And yes, it's, awesome to watch so the fans are at least getting this incredible elite athlete doing these incredible things but for him and for angels fans and for for anyone that appreciates the game to see that again and again happen where they're yeah it's it's like putting secretariat it's like pulling secretariat pulling a plow Yes, it's just, yes it's exactly. just, just a shame, just a shame. A lot of good analogies. That's a good one. So again, I'm speaking with Christian Red, sports writer for The Messenger. Is your beat going to be exclusively or primarily the New York teams, or will you be covering sports in general? Will you be focusing on a particular sport, or will you be kind of across the entire spectrum? So the short answer is I will not specifically be covering the New York teams. Uh, And my role as a senior writer will be to um, do enterprise type stories, investigative type stories, some of the things that I did at the Daily News, um, but also uh, explore other projects that will hopefully be unique and some of those are still in development or being discussed or explored, but the writing element, it will primarily be um, longer form stories. Okay. So for my listeners that are interested in following your writing, um, is the messenger a subscription only publication? That is uh, one of many unique um, elements of this messenger endeavor is that uh at least for now it is not subscription based it is content that is free for the reader how are they going to make money and when can we expect them to go out of business (laughs) hopefully hopefully not the the latter anytime soon the person behind the messenger is a media titan named jimmy finkelstein and for as long as he's been in the business and for as successful as he's been in this field, 
Uh, he's a very under the radar guy, um, but I would encourage people to read. Uh, there's a Vanity Fair piece that came out earlier this year with an interview of him. And in that piece, not only does he discuss this new messenger venture, which launched earlier this year, but also talks about those very things that you just uh, questioned. How are they going to make money? And I'll answer that in addition to the challenges that he or any media tycoon faces, that I think is the biggest challenge for any media outlet going forward. Uh, Monetizing the content. Monetizing Um, the content. Exactly. Exactly. You know my wife, wife, Nicole Sandler, you've been on her show. She, she interviewed you about the baseball cop book and, uh, just this week, she had on her show a gentleman by the name of Will Bunch, who writes for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yep. And he was talking about the fact that his paper has had to go to a subscription model. Yep. And I guess part of his deal with the paper uh, allows him to have his own newsletter. Mm-hmm. And the newsletter is free. But if you want the content from the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, so the editorials that he writes for the Inquirer or the s- stories that other people write directly for the Inquirer, uh, it's a subscription. And some of the things that he writes that originally appear in the paper then later on go out in the newsletter and, and vice versa. But um, it sounds like an interesting uh, uh, dab at it. That uh, what, what was the gentleman's name Jimmy, again? Jimmy Finkelstein. Jimmy Finkelstein sounds like an interesting stab that he's making at it and let him know if he's interested in putting on a good sports podcast part of the venture <laughs> that uh, well. I'm available and um, <laughs> I don't work cheap but I work reasonably and uh, you know where to find me I do and that's it for another edition of follow the money ball with your host David Sloan to make a comment or a suggestion for a future guest, reach out to David at followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.